Hello, and welcome to the X-Men Unraveled podcast. I'm Noelle, and in this podcast, I insanely try to follow the events of the X-Men universe in chronological order. Today, I am covering the story of Namor the Submariner. He is an Atlantean, a king, and a mutant. I have to admit to two things before I get started. First, I previously had no idea that Namor was a mutant. And second, I always assumed that Namor was a Marvel knockoff of DC's Aquaman. But not only did Namor come first, he's actually one of the earliest Marvel heroes. So my apologies to Namor. I never gave him much thought until I was doing my homework for this podcast and found out that he was actually a mutant. My penance will be this episode and the next, covering Namor's history and story. I'll follow his timeline up until about the 1950s, which is where we left off in the last episode with Professor X. And I'm going to do something a little different with Namor's story. Namor's introduction to Marvel Comics comes in Marvel Comics number one, and that lays out the framework for the character and his city of Atlantis. That made this kind of a complicated episode to write, because to get into who Namor is and what he does in his life requires going back into the history of a new species and civilization. So I'm going to start with the history of Atlantis and some Marvel mythology before I introduce Namor himself. most people are aware of the mythical island of Atlantis, but because you know I love history, I want to start with where the idea for the famous city comes from. We first hear about Atlantis from the Greek philosopher Plato in two works, Timaeus and Critias. They come from about 360 BCE and describe events that supposedly took place thousands of years earlier. Plato describes Atlantis as an island in the Atlantic Ocean, inhabited by a race of half-human and half-god people, who descended from the offspring of the Greek god Poseidon and a human woman. Poseidon granted the island to them, and they developed a wealthy and highly advanced society, as Atlantis was very rich in resources. But the island was lost after a series of cataclysmic earthquakes that caused it to sink into the sea. Plato's story of Atlantis has inspired people throughout the millennia, all the way to 1939 when writer and illustrator Bill Everett introduces it as the underwater kingdom where Namor lives in Marvel Comics number 1. Everett's story becomes the outline that later writers will build from for Namor and his world. In Saga of the Submariner number 1 from 1988, we learn some details of the Marvel version of the mythical Atlantis. And there's essentially two different Atlantises, the Island Kingdom and the Underwater Kingdom. The Saga comic tells us that the Island Kingdom existed thousands and thousands of years ago and became the site of an advanced seafaring civilization. It existed for centuries until it was destroyed in a battle between the races known as the Celestials and the Deviants. I've talked about the Celestials a couple of times before, but they're a powerful cosmic race that originated in the very earliest times of the universe. They're incomparably powerful, able to create and manipulate life, and are described as nearly omnipotent and immortal. If you remember, they're the ones responsible for inserting the X gene into the human genome, which is why I keep having to bring them up. 
So I'm going to go ahead and get into the origins of both the Celestials and Deviants. It's a bit of a tangent from Atlantis itself, but it's pretty important in understanding the Marvel Universe, and given the trajectory of the MCU, I think it's worth talking about. Also, the Celestials and Deviants are going to come up randomly in the comics, so I think it's time I just deal with their story. Uh, I've avoided it until now because it's a little bit complicated, but it explains the war that destroyed Atlantis, so it all connects, I swear. Most of this information just comes from the Marvel Wiki because it was a lot of comics to try and get into, but the basics can be found in part in Eternals number 1 and number 2 from 1976. So, in the beginning of Marvel time, there was a being known as the First Firmament. It's a little hard to describe, but the First Firmament is the sentient incarnation of the very first universe. The Firmament existed alone for unknown ages, and eventually got so lonely that it created new beings to live with, the Celestials and the Aspirants. The Aspirants worshipped the First Firmament and always sought its approval in their work and creations, and they were loyal to their creator and its goals. The Celestials, on the other hand, who are eventually described as multicolored rebels, started to have their own desires and goals that conflicted with those of the First Firmament. They wanted to create new beings who would evolve, grow, and experience mortality, but they also wanted the universe itself to evolve and die. And the first firmament is like, what the actual fuck, dudes? This is not what I wanted. And it saw the Celestial's desires as a challenge to its own nature and very existence. This leads the aspirants to declare war on the Celestial rebels. The war devastated the numbers of both Celestials and aspirants, but ultimately the Celestials were victorious. Their victory shattered the first firmament into hundreds of new universes, and it created the being known as the second cosmos, basically a multiverse. I told you it would relate to the MCU somehow, as the multiverse has opened up there now. The Celestials go on to colonize the second cosmos and create new beings to inhabit its worlds. But they weren't content with just creating new beings, but they also shaped their development and evolution. Eventually, the Celestials get involved in the life on Earth and shape humanity's development as well. They add the X-gene to the human genome, leading to the rise of mutants, and they also conducted other genetic experiments that led to two new races, the Eternals and the Deviants. I promise we are circling back to Atlantis. The Eternals aren't super important to this story, so I'm going to skip them for now. Um, I really do want to do like a bonus episode about them before the new movie comes out. But just for comparison's sake, the Eternals are super powerful, basically immortal, or at least as close to it as possible. They have their own powers and are described as beautiful. But the Deviants, who are relevant to the history of Atlantis, are significantly different from the Eternals. The name Deviants is actually what the Eternals called them. Their own name for themselves is the Changing People. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to use the name Deviance, despite its negative connotations and the fact that it's not their name for themselves, because it's usually how they're referred to in the comics. All Deviants have strange appearances and mutations, but they're not passed down through generations, so each Deviant is physically unique. They also have many distinct powers, similar to mutants, in that each individual has their own unique ability or power. After the Celestials create them, the Deviants go into hiding in caves on Earth. Eventually, 
They emerge from their caves and set about establishing cities and advancing technologically. Early on, the Deviants worshipped the Celestials, but that would change. Eventually, they gained control of enough territory to found their own empire, ruled from their capital of Lemuria in the Pacific Ocean. Not sure I'm saying that right, I forgot to look it up. The Deviants also enslaved some early humans, including many who served them on Lemuria. In about 18,000 BCE, these human slaves of the Deviants attacked Atlantis as part of a first wave of the Deviant attempt to conquer the island. The humans were defeated by the Atlanteans, but soon the Deviants themselves began attacking Atlantis. The Atlanteans got a brief but ultimately doomed respite when the Deviants were distracted from their attack by the return of the Celestials. After creating or altering life on a planet, the Celestials will leave it to progress, returning later to evaluate its evolution and possibly move it along. But the Deviants had by this time turned against the Celestials and fought their return. They no longer worshipped them and assumed the appearance of the Celestials to be a challenge to their empire building. In response, the Celestials deployed a weapon of mass destruction against the Deviant capital, Lemuria. The island was destroyed and lost to the ocean. But the Celestials' action also destabilized continents all around the world. Oceans rose, mountains fell, and lands were broken apart. One of the victims being Atlantis, which fractured and sank into the sea as well. The second phase of Atlantis is the development of the underwater kingdom where Namor will eventually come to live. After the island sank into the ocean, the saga of the Submariner No. 1 tells us that it remained untouched except by various sea creatures for thousands of years. But about 10,000 years ago, a new species called Homo mermanus found the wreckage of Atlantis and started rebuilding it into an underwater city of their own. This was a completely new race of underwater-adapted humanoids. They generally look like humans, like they have arms and legs, not like mermaids, um, but they have blue skin and gills and are able to survive in the pressure of the deep ocean. Different Marvel comics give different origins of this species. The Saga comic tells of a legend that the god Neptune, the Roman version of Poseidon, bestowed them with gills to permit them to live underwater. However, Invaders number 3 from 2019 reveals that Homo Mermanus actually originated on an entirely different planet, Voldon. The way that they got to Earth is a little strange, um, requiring a bit of a stretch of the imagination, even for comic books. In the Mindanao Trench, also called the Philippine Trench in the Pacific Ocean, there is an underwater portal. If someone swims through this portal, it connects the Earth and the water-covered planet Voldon. So 10,000 years ago, a group of Voldani, or Homo mermanus, swam through the portal and arrived in the Pacific Ocean, coming to live on Earth. They survived as hunter-gatherers for some time, and ultimately discovered the ruins of Atlantis and built their own home there, establishing a brand new underwater Atlantean civilization. The Atlanteans prospered, but some groups of Homo mermanus splintered off from the Atlanteans and established their own cities and other locations. One group found the remains of the deviant island of Lemuria and built their own city. Others lived as nomads. In about 1847, one of these groups, the nomadic Skarka, attacked Atlantis. They managed to kill the king and destroy much of the city. As a result, the Atlanteans relocated and built a new city in the southern ocean beneath the South Pole. 
This is where the Atlanteans lived when Namor was born. Namor's first appearance, like I mentioned, was in Marvel Comics number one from 1939. So he's literally there at the beginning of Marvel, and not, like I previously assumed, added into Marvel after Aquaman. Again, I'm sorry, Namor. I feel like he would not appreciate that assumption on my part. Namor was created by writer and illustrator Bill Everett. Another character introduced in that early issue was the Human Torch, so Everett wanted to have the balance between characters that controlled fire and water. He drew his inspiration for Namor from the 1798 poem The Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Namor's wide array of powers include superhuman strength, speed and stamina, aquatic healing, amphibious breathing, aquatic telepathy, and flight, just to name a few. Obviously, in 1939, mutants as we know them in Marvel publications today didn't exist yet. Later on, it would be explained that Namor's diverse range of powers come from the fact that he is half Atlantean and half mutant, because some of those powers are Atlantean, breathing underwater, surviving under the ocean, and all of that. But Atlanteans don't fly, and they can't live on land for long periods of time, which Namor can do. So they needed a way to explain that. I want to quickly go over the story from Marvel Comics number one, because although more would be added and changed in Namor's story, it still lays a pretty solid foundation for who Namor is. So I think Bill Everett deserves some credit for that, and so I want to go over his story. In this issue, we learn that Namor is the son of an Atlantean woman and a human man. And Namor's introduced as something of a villain, because he is loyal to Atlantis, which puts him at odds regularly with humans. And that part of his character remains throughout the comics. So one day, Namor is out and about swimming in the ocean, and he comes across some divers trying to salvage items from an old shipwreck. This is probably in the late 1930s. He doesn't know who or what they are and immediately attacks them, killing both divers. It's pretty cold-blooded. He then goes after their ship, grabbing one of the propellers and stopping the ship in its tracks. He then shoves the ship into some rocks, splitting it in two, and presumably killing everyone on board. So Namor gets a pretty dark entrance into the Marvel world. After taking out the ship, Namor strangely goes back and collects the bodies of the two divers that he killed and takes them deep into the ocean and into an underwater chamber. He brings them to the King of Atlantis and removes their helmets because they're wearing those old-timey giant helmets and diving gear. Um, and when he sees their faces, he exclaims, They are Earthmen! And his mother congratulates him, saying that he has taken a step towards revenge. He asks her why, because his father was an Earthman, so why are they so bad that the Atlanteans need revenge? His mother says that, yes, his father was a good guy, but in the past, humans had tried to eradicate the whole race of Atlanteans. She then tells the story of how she met his father in 1920, when humans were making expeditions to the South Pole. The men dropped bombs into the ice to break through it and get their ships through, but the explosions caused rocks and debris to come crashing into the Atlantean city, killing many of them. Fen was sent as a spy to the human base in order to help the Atlanteans defeat them. There she meets a man named Leonard Mackenzie, who is the leader of the expedition, and the two eventually fall in love and get married. 
but she was still carrying out her mission as a spy and taking information back to the King of Atlantis, eventually returning and giving birth to Namor. Finishing her tale, Fen tells her son that it is his job to lead the attack on the Earth people as their vengeance for the death of the Atlanteans was never completed, and since he is the only Atlantean that can live on land and in water, he has to take this on. While she was with Leonard Mackenzie above the surface, she regularly had to sneak away and get into the ocean to survive, but being half-Earthman, Namor doesn't have that problem. There's a little bit more, but that's the simplified recap of Namor's original introduction in the comics, and Bill Everett created a character with a complicated past that left the door wide open for later writers to expand. And of course they did. And how could they not? I was really surprised when I read the old comic just how interesting and complicated his story was, um, you know, introducing this whole new world of Atlantis and this interesting character who is half human, half Atlantean, but now he is going after Earth and he has to carry out this revenge. So I was actually really surprised that it wasn't a simplistic story um, in the original comic. In 1988, in the Saga of the Submariner number one, which I covered a bit about in the history of Atlantis, we really see them, uh, the writers build on this uh, foundation that Everett made. The issue keeps the basics of Namor's original story from Marvel Comics number one, which I think is a testament to how interesting the story Everett created is, uh, but it does add a lot of depth to the story of Fenn and Leonard Mackenzie. In this comic, we learn that the ship that brought Leonard Mackenzie was on a recovery mission to the South Pole. Officially, they were looking for the wreckage of a ship called the Endurance, which had been crushed in the Antarctic ice 12 years earlier. This comic is keeping the timeline that um, Leonard Mackenzie arrives at the South Pole in 1920. When we first see him, Leonard Mackenzie is the American captain of the ship The Oracle, and he's speaking with a man named Paul Destine. Mackenzie says that he brought Destine on the mission for his telepathic powers. So it seems like uh, Destine has to be a mutant. He brought Destine because he would be really helpful in searching for the remains of an ancient race they just call the Ancients. But to get through the ice-filled waters, they use explosives to break it apart and clear a safe path for the ship. Once again, we see rocks come crashing down onto the Atlantean city below and killing hundreds, if not thousands, of Atlanteans. But this time, we get a glimpse into the Atlantean recovery effort and see Fen, Namor's mother, searching the destroyed city for survivors with another Atlantean soldier. As they're searching through the rubble, another man swims up and tells her that her father, the Atlantean Emperor Thakor, has summoned her. She arrives at the palace and Thakor tells her he has an important task for her. The cause of the destruction that rained down on Atlantis is a mystery, and Fen assumes that she will be sent to investigate. But Thakor says he won't risk his daughter and only heir's life and just wants her to pick a team from their warriors for the expedition to determine what happened. Fen is not happy about being sidelined, so she gets to work setting her own plan into motion. She goes to the Hall of Science and talks to a researcher there who's been working on a potion that will allow Atlanteans to survive above the surface of the ocean. Fen tells him that she needs it and that she's on a secret mission, so don't mention it to anyone until she returns. And with that, she takes the potion 
and heads to the surface. Fen finds the ship the Oracle, climbs on board, and quickly runs into some crew members. As an Atlantean, Fen is stronger than several humans put together, but she allows herself to be captured and taken to the leader of the humans, Captain Leonard Mackenzie. And Mackenzie and the men don't know what to think. They're surprised that this woman has showed up, she's blue, and speaking an unrecognizable language, and they're also upset about her clothing. She's basically wearing an elaborate swimsuit, and so that upsets their 1920s sensibilities. Paul Destine comes up and says that he thinks she's one of the ancients, the people that they believe lived in Antarctica. It's unclear why he can't just use his telepathy to figure out who she is. Um, Maybe it doesn't work on Atlanteans. But either way, the crew has no idea who this blue woman is. Mackenzie gives his cabin to Fen and then offers her a coat since he thinks she needs to cover up. Fen's not happy about that because she can survive in the freezing-ass ocean. So she's like, great, I'm in a roast in this stupid coat. But she goes along with it to make him happy and puts it on. Then Mackenzie quickly gets over the fact that she's a blue lady that appeared out of nowhere in Antarctica and just starts thinking about how hot she is. So then he personally takes on the task of teaching her English because he just wants to spend some time around this gorgeous ocean lady. Fen stays learning English and gaining Mackenzie's trust, using the potion from the Atlantean scientist to survive outside of the water. Once she felt she had made enough progress on her mission, she sneaks off the ship and back down to Atlantis to update the Emperor. He's pretty pissed off that she put her life in danger against his explicit orders, but she tells him that her plan is working. He agrees that she's gathered some useful information that will help in their fight against the humans, but also forbids her from returning. Fen kind of freaks out at that announcement and says she has to get back to Mackenzie for the mission. Uh, But we can see that she has feelings for Mackenzie that are at least part of her motivation for returning to the ship. So Fen goes back, sneaks back onto the Oracle, and goes back to her cabin and starts thinking like a high schooler with a crush. She literally counts down the hours until she can see Mackenzie again. From what we see in the comic, Fen seems to have totally forgotten or overlooked the devastation that Mackenzie and the other humans caused. Hundreds or thousands of Atlanteans were literally crushed to death by the actions of Mackenzie and his crew, and even if she does know at this point it was an accident, I feel like that should factor higher in her evaluation of the whole situation. At least she should be working to stop them from doing it again, like no no progress has been made on this, and the lives of her people are literally at stake. And Fen is not some random person. She's next in line to the Atlantean throne. But she just seems to totally forget the safety of her people because she likes Mackenzie. I know I'm being harsh on Fen, but really, I'm just criticizing the writers. There's definitely some sexism in their portrayal of Fen. You know, they give her enough agency to go off and take on this mission for Atlantis, but then she totally gets sidelined by her crush on Mackenzie, and that becomes the focal point of the rest of the story. So anyway... The next day, Mackenzie is working with Fen on her English, and when she repeats a whole sentence, he says, you're utterly amazing. And she says, am I? And then they kiss, and Mackenzie says he loves her. It's gross. Fen replies, I like you too, which sounds like she's shooting him down, but I think maybe it's just where she is in her English learning. Um, Because later that night, she has the startling realization that she has fallen in love with the alien murderer of her beloved people, but she wasn't ashamed of it. 
It's like, come on, Fen. Priority number one should be stopping more of your people from dying. This part of the story just kills me. Because Fen is able to just push that thought right out of her mind, and the next thing we see is Fen and Mackenzie getting married on the ship. That night, when they are in the cabin together, Mackenzie tells Fen his plans for the future. First, he wants to get Fen to a doctor to take care of her skin condition that makes her blue. And then he says that they're going to go back to his home in California and get out of the freezing-ass Antarctic. Fen seems surprised about these announcements. Um, I don't know if she thought they'd live on the ship forever, um, or what, what she thought the future would hold. You'd think they would discuss that before they get married. But she starts to get worried because she needs to continue taking the potion to be able to live outside the water, but she's running out and growing weaker by the day. She tells Mackenzie that she needs to go out for some air, but now Mackenzie is being totally clingy and won't leave her side. For two days, she tries to get away from him, but he follows her everywhere and she starts to feel at least a little bit like a prisoner. But on the third day, Mackenzie um, has a mission and sets out with some of his crew, leaving Fen behind on the ship. Mackenzie and the men are out searching for remnants of the ancients, which they believe are a telepathic ancient race. They head off into a cave and manage to discover a giant machine, which they see as evidence of the ancients. Mackenzie wants to dig the machine out of the ice where it's buried, but Paul Destine refuses. He says that its powers could be unimaginably dangerous and he won't share it with anyone. And Destine starts hacking through the ice and when he gets down to the machine, touches it, it starts running. But before they can learn anything else, the rumbling of the machine causes a huge avalanche Mackenzie and the other men are able to run to safety, but Destine is buried in rubble from the cave. Mackenzie gets back to the ship and finds Fen. She's growing really weak at this point, and she's trying to conserve the potion so it lasts as long as possible. But as the couple have their little reunion, the ship is shaken by some sort of explosion, and a group of Atlantean soldiers storm on board. Fen's been gone for a really long time now, and the Atlanteans and her father assumed she'd been hurt or captured, so the Emperor sent a rescue force. The Atlanteans attack the men on the ship with, like, these laser guns, and Fen sees Mackenzie get shot and fall to the ground. But before she can reach him, one of the Atlanteans grabs her and drags her back into the sea, and she returns to Atlantis believing that Mackenzie is dead. But Mackenzie survives and learns that Fen was taken overboard. The crew assumes that she must have drowned. Mackenzie wants to go after her, but the crew mutinies. They start using explosives again to break their way through the ice and escape any more attacks by the Atlanteans. Once again, Atlantis is decimated by the falling rock. Great work, Fen. This was literally your job to stop this from happening. But whatever. Fen returns to Atlantis and, of course, learns that she is pregnant. She gives birth to a son, who is also in line to the throne now. He isn't blue like the other Atlanteans, he just looks like a little white baby, because he's half-human. But Fen says that she's going to raise him to be more Atlantean than any of them, and names him Namor, which means avenging son. Namor's status as half-human and half-Atlantean will make him an interesting character, and he often plays the role of anti-hero. His goals don't always align nicely, or at all, with other Marvel characters, since he's loyal to the underwater world where Atlantis exists. I'm gonna leave Namor's story here for now, and next episode I'll cover some of the adventures that the Prince of Atlantis gets into. 
There was a lot to cover in this episode to explain where Namor came from, so I hope you enjoyed the little detour all the way back to the beginning of the Marvel Universe. I know that was a little different from what I usually cover, but I felt like it was important to get all the mythology out of the way, especially since it ties into Namor's heritage and the history of Atlantis. So I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for sticking it out if you've made it this far in the episode. In the meantime, you can always check out my Instagram at X-Men Unraveled, and if you feel like it, you can leave me a review. That would be very much appreciated. And join me next time to learn more about Namor and his entry into the surface world. Bye! Bye!